Welcome to this Uvila audio presentation of Andrea Norton's The Stars Are Ours, Volume 2. Chapter 2, Hiding Out. Before they reached the outlet below the barn, Dard brought them to a halt. There was no use emerging into the arms of some snooping peaceman. It was better to stay in hiding until they could see whether or not the enemy had been fooled by the burning house. The passage in which the three crouched was walled with rough stone and so narrow that the shoulders of the two adults brushed both sides. It was cold and icy with a chill that crept up from the bare earth underneath through their ill-covered feet to their bones and then into their shivering bodies. How long they could stay there without succumbing to the cold, Dar didn't know. He bit his lip anxiously as he strained to hear the sounds from above. He was answered by an explosion, the sound and shock of which came down to them through the passage from the house. And then there was a slightly hysterical chuckle from Lars. What happened? began Dard, and then answered his own question. The laboratory. Yes, the laboratory, Lars said, leaning against the wall. There was relaxation in both his pose and voice. We'll have a mess to come through now. All the better, snapped Dard. Will it feed the fire? Feed the fire. Might blow up the whole building. There won't be enough pieces left for them to discover what was inside before the blast. Or who might have been there? For the first time, Dard saw a ray of real hope. The peacemen could not have known of this passage. They probably believed that the dwellers in the farmhouse had been blown up in the explosion. The escape of the Nordis family was covered. They now had a better-than-even chance. But still he waited, or rather made Lars and Desi wait in hiding while he crept on into the barn hole and climbed up the ladder he had placed there for such a use as this. Then, making a worm's progress crawling, he crossed the rotted floor to peer out through the doorless entrance. The outline of the farmhouse walls was gone, and tongues of blue-white flame ate up the dark to make the scene day bright. Two men in black and white peace uniforms were dragging a third away from the holocaust. There was a lot of confused shouting. Dard listened and gathered that the raiders were convinced that their prey had gone up with the house, taking with them two officers who had just beaten in the back door before the explosion. And there had been three others injured. The roundup gang was hurrying away, apprehensive of other explosions. Peacemen who prided themselves on their lack of scientific knowledge were apt to harbor such suspicions. Dard got to his feet. The last man, trailing a stun gun, was going around the fire now, keeping a careful distance from the chemically-fed flames, such a distance that he plunged waist-deep through the snowdrifts. And a few moments later, Dard saw the copter rise and circle the farm once and head west. He sighed with relief and went back to get the others. All clear he reported to Lars as he supported the crippled man up the ladder. They think we went up in the explosion, and they were afraid there might be another, so they left fast. Again, Lars chuckled. They won't be back in a hurry, then. Dad! Desi was a small shadow moving through the gloom. If our house is gone, where are we going to live now? My practical daughter, Lars said. We will find some other place. Dard remembered. The messenger you were expecting. 
He might see the place from the hills and not come at all. And that's why you're going to leave him a sign that we're still in the land of the living, Dodd. As Desi points out, we don't have a roof over us now, and the sooner we're out of the way, the better. Since our late callers believe us to be dead, there's no danger in Desi and I staying right where we are now, while you do what's necessary to bring help. Follow the wall in the top pasture to the corner, where the old woods road begins. About a quarter of a mile beyond it is a big tree with a hollow in it. Put this inside. Lars pulled a piece of rag out of his wrappings. Then come back here. That'll bring our man on down, even if he sees an eruption going on. It tells him that we've escaped and are hiding out, waiting to make contact. If he doesn't come by morning, we'll try moving up closer to the tree. Dodd understood. His brother didn't attempt the journey through the snow and brush at night. But tomorrow they could ring some kind of board sled from the debris and drag Lars into the safety of the woods. In the meantime, it was very necessary to leave the sign. With a word of caution to them both, Dard left the barn. By instinct, he kept to the shadows cast by the trees and brush which encroached on the once fertile fields. Near the farm buildings was a maze of tracks left by the peacemen, and he used them to hide the pattern of his own steps. Just why he took such precautions, he couldn't tell, but the wariness which had guided every move of his life for years had now become an ingrown part of him. On the other hand, now that the raid he had feared for so long had come, and he and his were still alive and free, he felt eased of some of the almost intolerable burden. As he tramped away from the dying fire, the night was very still and cold. Once a snowy owl slipped across the sky, and deep in the forest a wolf or one of the predatory wild dogs howled, Dar did not find it difficult to locate Lars's tree and made sure that the rag was safe in the black hollow of his trunk. The cold ate into him, and he hurried on his back trail. Maybe they might dare light a small fire in the cellar pit, just enough to keep them from freezing until morning. How close was dawn, he wondered as he stumbled and clutched at a snow-crowned wall to steady himself. Bed, sleep, warmth. He was so tired, so very tired. And then a sound ripped through the night air. A shot. His face twisted and his hand went to the haft of his knife. A shot. Lars had no gun. The peacemen. But they had gone. Clumsily, slipping, Fighting to keep his footing in the treacherous snowdrifts, Dard began to run. Within a matter of minutes, he came to his senses and dodged into cover, making his way to the barn in such a manner as to provide no target for any marksman lurking there. Desi, Lars, they were alone there without any means of defense. Dard was close to the building when Desi's scream came, and that scream tore all the caution from him. Balancing the knife in his hand, he threw himself across the churned snow of the yard for the door, and his sacking-covered feet made no sound as he ran. Got ye, imp of sightin'! Dard's arm came up, the knife poised, and as if for once fortune was on his side, there was a sharp tinkle of breaking glass from the embers of the house and a following sweep of flame to light the scene within the barn. Desi was fighting, silently now, with all the frenzy of a small cornered animal in the hands of Hugh Foley. One of the man's hard fists was aimed right for her face as Dard threw the knife. The months he had practiced with that single weapon were now rewarded. 
Desi flew free as the man hurled her away. On hands and knees she scuttled into the dark. Hugh turned and bent over as if to grope for the rifle which lay at his feet, and coughing went down. Dard grabbed the rifle. Only when it was in his hands did he come up to the still-coughing man. He pulled at Foley's shoulder and rolled him over. Bitter hatred stared up at Dard from the small, dark eyes of the other. You got me, you dirty, stink man. Foley mouthed and then coughed. Blood bubbled from his slack lips. I knew you was hiding right here. Kill. Kill. The rest was lost in a gush of blood. He tried to raise himself, but the effort was beyond him. Dard watched grimly until it was over, and then, fighting down a rising nausea, undertook the dirty business of retrieving his knife. The sun did not show when he came out of the barn with Desi after some hours, which he did not want to remember. From a gray sky whirled flakes of white. Dard regarded them blankly at first, and then with a dull relief. A snowstorm would hide a lot. Not that anyone would ever find Lars's poor, twisted body, now safely walled up in the passage. But Foley's people might be detained by a heavy storm if they started a search. The landsman had been a tyrant and the district bully, not loved enough to arouse interest for a sizable search party. Where are we going, Daddy? Desi's voice was a monotone. She hadn't cried, but she had shivered continuously. And now she looked at the outer world with a shadow of dread in her eyes. He drew her closer as he shouldered their bag of supplies. Into the woods, Desi. We'll have to live as the animals do for a while. Are you hungry? She didn't meet his gaze as she shook her head, and she made no effort to move until his hand on her shoulder drew her along. The snow thickened in a wild dance driven by gusts of wind to hide the still-smoldering cellar of the farmhouse. Pushing Desi before him, Dard began the hike back along his path of the night before, toward the hollow tree in the meeting place. To contact Lars's messenger might now be their only chance. Under the trees, the fury of the storm was less, but the snow packed against their bodies, clinging to their eyelashes, and a wisp of hair which hung across Desi's forehead so that she brushed at it mechanically. Food, heat, and shelter. Their needs made a pattern in Dard's mind, and he clung to it, shutting out memories of the past night. Desi could not stand this tromping for very long, and he was almost to the end of his own strength. He used the rifle as a staff. The rifle and three shells. He had those. But he dared not use the weapon except as a last resort. The sound of a shot carried too far. There were only a few guns left, and they were in the hands of those whom the peacemen had reason to trust. Anybody hunting for Foley would be attracted by a shot. If their escape became suspected, he shivered with something other than cold. Hurting Desi at a steady pace, he fought his way to the hollow tree. There was no need to worry about the trail they had left. The snow filled it in in a matter of minutes. But they had to stay near here, for Lars's messenger to find them. Dart set Desi to treading back and forth in a space he marked out for her. That not only kept her moving and so fighting the insidious cold numbness, 
but it packed down a flooring for the shelter he had built. A fallen tree gave it backing, and pine branches heaped up, covered with snow, provided a roof. He could see the hollow in the tree from his lair, and he impressed upon Desi the necessity of watching for anybody coming along the path. They ate handfuls of snow together with wooden bits of salted meat, but the little girl complained of sleepiness, and at last Dard huddled in the shelter with Desi in his arms, the rifle at hand, fighting down drowsiness to keep his grim vigil. At length he had to put down the rifle between his feet, the end of the barrel just under his jaw, so that when he nodded the touch of the cold metal nudged him back into wakefulness. How long they dared stay there was a question which continued to trouble him. What if the messenger didn't come, today or tomorrow? Well, there was a cave back in the hills which he had discovered during the past summer, but... The jab of the rifle barrel made his eyes water with pain. The snow had stopped falling. Branches, heavily burdened, were bent to the ground, but the air was free. He pulled back his top covering and studied Desi's pinched face. She was sleeping, but now and again she twisted uneasily, and once she whimpered. He changed position to aid his cramped legs, and she half-roused. But right on her inquiring, Darty, came another sound, and his hand clamped right across her lips. Someone was coming along the woods trail, singing tunelessly. The messenger? Before Dart's hope was fully aroused, it was dashed. He saw a flash of red around a bush, and then the wearer of the bright cap came into full view. Dart's lips drew back into a half-snarl. Lotta Foley. Desi struggled in his arms, and he let her crawl to one side of the tiny shelter. But though he brought up the rifle... He found he could not aim it. Hugh Foley, betrayer and murderer, yes. His daughter, though she might be of the same brutal breed, though he might be throwing away freedom and life, he just could not kill. The girl, a sturdy stout figure in her warm homespuns and knitted cap, halted, panting beneath the very tree he must watch. If she glanced up now, if her wood sight was as keen as his, and he had no reason to doubt that it was, then all would be lost. Lotta Foley's head raised, and across the open expanse of snow her eyes found Dard's strained face. He made no move in a last desperate attempt to escape notice. After all, he was in the half-shadow of the shelter, and she might not see him, the protective playing dead of an animal. But her eyes widened, and her full mouth shaped a soundless expression of astonishment. With a kind of pain, he waited for her to cry out. Only, she made no sound at all. After that first moment of surprise, her face assumed its usual stupid, slightly sullen solidity. She brushed some snow from the front of her jacket without looking at it. And when she spoke in her hoarse, common voice, she might have been addressing the tree at her side. The peace men are a hunting. Dard made no answer. She powdered her lips and added, They're a hunting you. He kept silent, and she stopped, brushing her jacket, and her eyes wavered around the trees and brush walling in the old road. They say as how your brother's a stink man. Stink man was the appropriate term for a scientist. Dard continued to hold his tongue, but her next question surprised him. 
Desi. Is Desi all right? He was too slow to catch the little girl who slipped by him to face the Foley girl gravely. Lotta fumbled in the breast of her pocket and brought out a packet folded in a piece of grease-blotted cloth. She didn't move up to offer it to Desi, but set it down carefully on the end of a tree stump. For you, she said to the little girl. Then she turned to Dard. You better not stick around. Pa told the peacemen about you. She hesitated. Pa didn't come back last night. Dard sucked at his breath. That glance she had shot at him. Had there been knowledge in it? But if she knew what lay in the barn, why wasn't she heading the hue and cry to their refuge? Lotta Foley, he never regarded her with any pleasure. In the early days, when they had first come to the farm, she had often visited them, watching Katia and Desi with a kind of lumpish interest. She had talked little, and what she said suggested that she was hardly more than a moron. He had been contemptuous of her, though he had never showed it. Pa didn't come back last night, she repeated, and now he was sure she knew or suspected. But what would she do? He couldn't use the rifle. He just couldn't. Then he realized that she must have seen that weapon, seen and recognized it. He could offer no reasonable explanation for having it with him. Foley's rifle was a treasure. It wouldn't be in the hands of another, and surely not in the hands of Foley's enemy as long as Foley was alive. Dard caught the past tense. So she did know. Now what was she going to do? Pa hated lots of things. Her eyes slipped away from his to Desi. Pa liked to hurt things. The words were spoken without emotion, but in her usual dull tone. He wanted to hurt Desi. He wanted to send her to a work camp. He said he was gonna. You better give me that there gun, Dard. If they find it with Pa, they ain't gonna look round for anybody that ran away. But why? He was shocked, almost out of his suspicion. Nobody's gonna send Desi to no work camp, she stated flatly. Desi, she's special. Her mama was special, too. Once, she made me a play baby. Pa, he found it and he burned it up. You, you can take care of Desi. You gotta take care of Desi. Her eyes met his again compellingly. You gotta get away from here and take Desi where some of them peacemen ain't gonna find her. Give me Pa's rifle and I'll cover up. Driven to the last rags of his endurance, Dard met that with the real truth. We can't leave here yet. She cut him off. Someone a-coming for you? And Pa was right. Your brother was a stink man. Dard found himself nodding. All right, then, she shrugged. I can let you know if they come again. But you see to Desi. You mind that. I'll see to Desi. He held out the rifle and she took it from him before she pointed again to the packet. Give her that. I'll try to get you some more, maybe tonight. If they think you got away, they'll bring dogs out from town. If they do... She shuffled her feet in the snow, 
Then she stood the rifle against the hollow tree and unbuttoned the front of her jacket. Her eyes, clumsy in mittens, unwound a heavy, knitted scarf and tossed it to the child. You put that on you, she ordered with some of the authority of a mother, or at least an elder sister. I'd leave you my coat, only they'd notice. She picked up the rifle again. Now I'll put this here where it belongs, and maybe they won't go a-hunting. Speechless, Dard watched her turn down the trail, still at a loss to understand her actions. Was she really going to return that rifle to the barn? How could she, knowing the truth? Why? He knelt to wind the scarf around Desi's head and shoulders. For some reason, Foley's daughter wanted to help them, and he was beginning to realize that he needed all the aid he could get. The packet that Lada had left contained such food as he had not seen in years. Real bread, thick buttered slices of it, and a great hunk of fat pork. Desi would not eat unless he shared it with her, and he took enough to flavor his own meal of wretched fare they had brought with them. When they had finished, he asked one of the questions which had been in his mind ever since Lada's amazing actions. Do you know Lada well, Desi? She ran her tongue around her greasy lips, collecting stray crumbs. Lotta came over often. But I haven't seen her since. He stopped before he mentioned Katia's death. She comes and talks to me when I'm in the fields. I think she's afraid of you and Daddy. She always brings me nice things to eat. She said someday she wanted to give me a dress. A pink one. I would very much like a pink dress, Daddy. I like Lotta. She's always good. Inside, she's good. Desi smoothed down the ends of her new scarf. She was afraid of her daddy, Daddy. He was mean to her. Once he came when she was with me, and he was very, very mad. He cut a stick with his knife, and he hit her with it. She told me to run away quick, and I did. He was a very bad man, Daddy. I was afraid of him, too. And he won't come after us, will he? No, he won't. He persuaded Desi to sleep again, and when she awoke, he knew that he had to have some rest himself. Impressing upon her how much their lives depended on it, he told her to watch the tree and awaken him if anybody came. It was sunset when he was aroused from an uneasy, nightmare-haunted sleep. Desi squatted quietly beside him, her small, grave face turned to the trail, as he shifted his weight, she glanced up. There was just a bunny. She pointed to a small, betraying track. But no people, Dodd. Is there any bread left? I'm hungry. Of course you are. He crawled out of the shelter and stretched cramped limbs before unwrapping the remains of Lotta's bounty. In spite of her vaunted hunger, Dessie ate slowly, as if savoring each crumb. The light was fading fast, although there were still red streaks in the sky. Tonight, they had to remain here. But tomorrow? If Lada's return of the rifle to the barn did not stop the search, then tomorrow the fugitives would have to take to the trail again. Is it going to snow again, Dottie? He studied the sky. I don't think so. I wish it would, though. Why? When the snow is deep, it's hard to walk. He tried to explain. Because when it snows, it's really warmer. Too cold at night, otherwise. He didn't finish that sentence, but encircled Desi with a 
long arm and drew her back onto the shelter with him. She wriggled about, settling herself more comfortably, then jerked upright again. Somebody's coming. Her whisper was warm on his cheek. He had heard it too, the faint creak of a foot on the icy-coated snow, and his hand closed about the haft of his knife. Chapter 3 The Cleft Dwellers He was a small man, the newcomer, and Dard overtopped him by four inches or more, and that gave the boy confidence enough to pull out of the shelter. He watched the stranger come confidently on, as though he knew just how many steps lay between himself and some goal. His clothing, what could be seen of it in the fast, deepening dusk, was as ragged and patched as Dard's own. This was no landsman or peaceman scout, only one who did not hold all the important confidence cards would go about so unkempt, which meant that he was an unreliable, almost as much an outlaw as a technier or a scientist. The newcomer stopped abruptly in front of the tree, but did not raise his hand to the hollow. Instead, he studied the tracks left by Lada, but finally he shrugged and reached into the hole. Dart moved, and the other whirled in a half-crouch. There was the gleam of teeth in his bearded face and another glint of bare metal in his hand. But he made no sound, and it was Dard who broke the quiet. I'm Dart Notice. So? The single word was lengthened to approximate a reptile's hiss, and Dard sensed that he was facing a dangerous man, a menace far worse than Hugh Foley or any of his brutal kind. Suppose you tell me what has happened, the man added. Roundup raid, last night, Dard returned laconically. His initial relief at the other's coming considerably dampened. We thought we had escaped. I came up to leave that message for Lars. He motioned to the rag. When I got back, Lars was dead, killed by the neighbor who probably set them on us. So Desi and I came here to wait for you. Peacemen, the man spat, and Lars Nordis dead. That's a bad piece of luck, very bad. He made no move to put away the gun he held. It resembled a hand stun gun, but certain peculiarities of the stub barrel suggested it was a much more deadly weapon than that. And now, the man moved a step or two in Dard's direction. What do you expect me to do with you? Dard moistened dry lips with a nervous tongue. He hadn't considered it. Without Lars and what Lars had to offer, the mysterious underground might not wish to burden themselves with an untrained boy and a small child. Grim necessity was the law among all the present outlaws, and useless hands coupled with another mouth to feed were not wanted. He had a single hope. Lars had been so insistent about that word pattern that Dard dared now believe that he must carry his brother's discovery in that memorized design of lines and numbers. He had to believe that and impress the importance of that information upon this messenger. It would be their passport to the underground. Laws had finished his work. Dart schooled his voice to conversational evenness. I think you need the results. The man's head jerked. Now he did put away that oddly shaped gun. You have the formula? Dard took a chance and touched his own forehead. I have it here. 
and I'll deliver it when and if I reach the proper persons. The messenger kicked moodily at a lump of snow. It's a long trip back into the hills. Do you have supplies? Some. I'll talk when we're safe, when Desi is safe. I don't know. A kid. The going's going to be pretty tough. You'll find we could keep up. Dard made a promise he had no surety of keeping. But we had better start now. There's just a chance they may be after us. The man shrugged. All right. Come ahead. Both of you. Dard handed the bag of supplies to the other and took Desi's hand. Without another word, the man turned to retrace the way he had come, and the other two followed, keeping as well as they could to the trail he had broken. They traveled on all night. Dard first led, and then carried Desi, until, after one halt, the guide waved him on and raised the little girl to his shoulders, leaving Dard to stumble along unburdened. They rested at intervals, but never long enough to relax, and Dard despaired of being able to keep up the pace. This messenger was a tireless machine, striding as might a robot along some hidden trail of which he alone knew the landmarks. At dawn they were close to the top of a rise. Dard pulled himself up the last of that steep slope, panting to discover the other waiting for him. With a jerk of his thumb, the man indicated the crest of the divide. Cave. Camp. He got out the two words stiffly and put Desi down. Can you make it by yourself? He asked her. Yes. Her hand sought his confidently. I'm a good climber. There was a hint of a smile, an awkward smile, pulling long-forgotten muscles around his tight mouth. You sure are, sister. The cave was fairly deep, the narrow entrance giving little hint of the wide room found after squeezing through. It was a revelation to Dard as the guide snapped on a hand beam from a tiny carrying case he took from a ledge by the entrance. This was, the boy gathered, a regular camping place used by the underground travelers. He sank down on a bed of leaves and watched their companion pull out a black box, adjusting a dial on its side. Within seconds, they began to feel the heat radiating from it. Free scientist equipment. All of this. All top contraband. Dard had dim, pre-purged memories of such aids to comfort. Desi gave a sigh of pure contentment and curled up as close to that wonder as she could get. She watched with sleepy eyes the owner of this marvel break open a can of soup and pour its half-frozen contents into a pan which he set on top of the heating unit. He rummaged through the bag of supplies Dard had brought, grunting at the scantiness of the pitiful collection. We didn't have much time to pack, said Dard, finally irritated by the other's unspoken contempt. What brought them down on you? The man asked, squatting back on his heels. He had the strange gun out, checking the clip which carried his charge, squinting down the few inches of its barrel. Who knows? There was a landsman. He wanted the farm. He was the one who shot Laws. Huh. The man peered into the now bubbling soup, that it may have just been only a routine raid after all, sparked by just general malice. That, Dard gathered from his tone, was the answer more desired by the stranger. And his own thoughts went back to the last evening in the farmhouse when Lars 
had made his announcement of success. The raid had followed too aptly, almost as if Lars's discovery at all costs had to be prevented from reaching those who might make use of it. What had Lars been working on, and why was it so important? And did he, Dard, actually know anything about it? What's your name? Desi eyed their companion over the cup of soup he had poured for her. I've never seen you before. For the second time, that shadow smile appeared on the guy's lips. No, you don't know me, Desi, but I've seen you several times. You can call me Sack. Sack, she repeated. That's a funny name, but this is very good soup, Sack. Is this a celebration? He looked startled. Don't know about its being a celebration, Desi, but it's going to be a day of sleep for all of us. We have a long way to go. Suppose you bed down over there and close your eyes. Dard was nodding over his own supply of food, and a very short time later followed the orders. He awoke with a start. Sack was stooping over him, his grimed hand over Dard's mouth as he shook him by the shoulder. As soon as he saw the awareness in the boy's eyes, he dropped down to one knee to whisper. There's a copter circling. It's been up and around overhead for half an hour. Either we've been trailed or they've found out about this cave and put a watch on it. Now you listen and get this straight. What Lars Nordis was doing means more than life to the cleft dwellers. They've been waiting for the results of his last tests. He paused and in quite a different voice, as if repeating some talisman, added two words Dard had once heard from Lars. Ad Astra. Then, in a harsh command, he continued, They've got to have it, and have it quickly. We're some five miles from the valley. Set a line straight to the peak you can see from this cave entrance and keep to it. Give me a good start and watch. If the copter follows me, then it's okay for you to make the break to reach the peak. Keep under cover all you can. There's only one long stretch where you cross the river that you have to be in the open. But you... Dard was trying to pull his sleep-scattered thoughts together. I'll go down the slope the opposite way. They're suspicious of this hiding hole and are watching it. They may take out after me. And I've played this type of hide-and-seek before. I know the game. You watch from the entrance while I go. Now. Dard followed him to the narrow opening where Sack lingered just within the shadow, listening. Now Dard could hear it too, the faint whine of the copter beating through the cold afternoon air. It grew to a steady drone, passed overhead and faded. Sack still waited. Then he gave a curt nod to Dard and melted away. The boy crawled to the very edge of the concealing overhang. Sack, by some trick, had won a good ten feet down the slope. It would be difficult for anyone sighting him now to guess just where he had appeared from. He slid down in only enough hurry to suggest that he was bolting from a position he considered dangerous. Now the copter was on its way back, either on a routine sweep or because the dark figure of Sack had been sighted. He leapt into the shelter of a pine-grown thicket, but not soon enough to escape detection. The copter circled down. There was a loud crack, awaking echoes from the surrounding rocks. Somebody had shot the fugitive. Daddy! 
It's all right, the boy called reassuringly over his shoulder into the cave. I'll be back in a minute. Sack had probably wormed his way down to the edge of the deep woods. The copter made another smaller and tighter circle and came close to the ground to allow three men to leap into the snow. Before they could gain their feet and their balance, a pencil of green light beamed a tight ray at once. He screamed and threshed the snow into a high shower of drift. The others threw themselves flat but continued to snake around the wood from which the attack had come, and the copter swooped to spray death into the silent trees. Sack had not only drawn the attention of the trackers, he was also using every means of keeping it on him. The copter soared above the trees, westward away from the cave. When the two men broke into the brush, under cover, Dard watched them out of sight. It would be evening soon, and the eastern slope was well provided with cover. There were sections of bare rock on the slope where no snow clung. Dar's eyes narrowed. Footprints were easy to see from the air, but there was another way of getting down to the valley, one which would leave no such telltale traces. He went inside and clicked on the light that Sack had left. Is it time to go, Daddy? Desi asked. First we eat. He made himself move deliberately. If Sack's information was right, they still had a long trip before them, and they must not start it with empty stomachs. He used supplies recklessly before tying up enough of the remains to provide them with food for at least one more day. Where's Sack? Desi wanted to know. He had to go away. We'll travel alone now. Eat everything, Desi. I am, she answered almost peevishly. I wish we could stay here. Box makes it so nice and warm. For a moment, Dard was tempted to do just that. To venture out onto an unknown trail through the snow and cold when they could just lay snug here seemed not only foolish but almost criminal, especially when it involved taking Desi into that wilderness. But the urgency which had sent Sack out into the very mouth of danger to draw off pursuit could not be denied. If Sack believed that the information they carried was as important as that. Well, they would uphold their end of the bargain. There was always the fear in his mind since the coming of the copter that the cave had been marked down and was known to the peacemen. It was dusk when they came out into the snap of the cruel air. Dard pointed to the nearest ledge of bare rock sloping downward. We've got to walk along that ledge so as to not leave tracks in the snow, Desi. Desi nodded. But when the rock ends, what do we do then, Daddy? Wait and see. They edged along the ledge, and it seemed to Dard that the chill struck up from the stone with double intensity. But Desi flittered ahead and was teetering back and forth on the very edge as he caught up. Now, he told her, we're going to jump into that big drift down there. He had meant to make that leap first and was tensing his muscles for the spring when Desi just went over. Whether she had voluntarily thrown herself over or whether she had lost her balance, he couldn't tell. But before he could move, she had disappeared and a plume of snow puffed to mark her landing place. Dard crouched there uncertainly until he saw the wave of an arm. Then he plunged, calculating his fall to land him apart from Desi. He was a moment in the frosty air and then deep in snow 
which choked his mouth and blinded his eyes. When they had fought their way out of the drift, Dard glanced back up the slope. They had won into the shadow of the woods where their trail would be concealed from copter spies. His ruse had succeeded. Now he swung to the east. Five miles, Sack had said. Their progress would depend upon drifts and footing. It wouldn't be too hard going in the shelter of the trees. Luckily, there was no dense forest, and by steering with the peak and the river, they could reach their ultimate goal. In the beginning, the journey appeared simple, and Dard was lighthearted. But before morning dawned, they were caught in a nightmare. They had reached the river's bank, only to find the ice crust here too thin to use as a bridge. Time and again, as they hunted along its bank, they sank knee-deep into the powdery snow. Dard carried Desi again and had to abandon the bag of supplies. He knew with a sinking heart that the periods of struggle between the rests were growing shorter and shorter, but he dared not give up and try to camp, being sure that if once he relaxed, he would never rise again. Morning found them at the one place where the river might be crossed. An arch of ice, snow-crowned, made a perilous bridge over which they crept fearfully. The peak stood, needle-pointing into the sky, probably, the boy thought bitterly, mockingly, looking closer than it was. He tried to keep to the cover afforded by brush and trees, but the rays of the rising sun reflected from the snow and confused him, and at last he plodded on, setting each foot down with exaggerated care, grimly determined only upon keeping his feet with or without protection from the copter. Desi rested across his shoulder, her eyes half-closed. He believed she was unconscious now or very close to it. She gave no protest when he laid her body down on a fallen tree and leaned against another forest giant to draw panting gasps that cut his lungs with knives of ice. Some instinct or good fortune had kept him on the right course. That peak was still ahead and now he could see that it guarded the entrance to a narrow cleft through which a small pathway led. But what lay beyond that cleft and how far he would still be from help if he could reach it, he had no idea. Dard allowed himself to rest until he had counted slowly to one hundred and then lifted Desi again and lurched on, trying to avoid the clutching briars on neighboring bushes. In that moment, as he straightened up with the girl in his arms, he thought he had sighted a strange glint of light from near the crown of the peak. Sun striking on ice, he reasoned dully as he plodded on. He was never to know if he could have made the last lap of that journey under his own power, for before he had gone a hundred yards, his fatigue-dulled ears caught the ominous sound of a copter engine. And without trying to locate the source, he threw himself and his burden into the bushes, rolling through the snow and enduring the lash of the branches. The whine of the machine's supporting blades sounded doubly clear through the morning air, and a second later he saw splinters fly from a tree trunk not a foot away. Dragging Desi, he pulled back into thicker cover, but he knew that he was only prolonging the end. They knew that he was alone except for the child. They would conclude that he was unarmed. They had only to land men and take him at their leisure. But though the copter swept back and forth over the tangle of brush into which he had burrowed his way, 
It made no move to land anyone. So thinking he was now screened from their sight, Dard squatted down, holding Desi tightly, trying to think. Sack. Sack and the green ray which had brought down the peacemen back on the heights by the cave. That was it. They knew he carried no rifle, but they were afraid he might be armed with one of those more potent weapons such as Sack had used. Desi whimpered and clung closer to him as the copter made another dive above their hiding place, one which leveled off only inches above the branches, which might have tangled in the undercarriage. The crack of rifle fire punctuated the whine of the engine. Again, he watched splinters fly, one close enough to score his cheek. By will alone, he held himself immovable and kept Desi captive, though her little body flinched at the sound of each shot. Those above could not see their quarry, or they would not be spraying bullets so indiscriminately. This raking of the brush was to force him out, and the worst of it was that they could do just that. Dard knew that the searching stream of death quartering the thicket would either kill them or force them to move. He blinked at the bushes and made his first constructive move, stripping Lada's scarf off Desi's head and shoulders. Quickly, he tangled the thick wool in some thorned branches. Then he put Desi on her knees on the snow and pushed her away from the thorn bush. She obediently wormed her way off as Dard followed, moving by inches. Luckily, the copter was now making the rounds of the perimeter of the thicket, and for a minute or two, there was no shooting. Dard traveled on until the scarf end pulled taut in his hand, until he could keep his grip on the loose end only with the thumb and forefinger at the full extent of an outstretched arm. Then he lay waiting. The copter was moving in again, while more than one marksman added to a crisscross fire. Dard bit deep on the soft inner side of his lip. Now. By the sound, the copter was just in the right position. As a rifle cracked, Dard gave two quick jerks of the scarf and was answered by a loud burst of fire. Then he screamed wildly and Desi, shocked out of her bewilderment, echoed him thinly. Another tug of the scarf for good measure and then he was racing on hands and knees, bumping Desi before him. If they would only believe that he or Desi or both had been hit, that should bring them down and set them fighting their way to the spot where he had fastened the scarf. And then there would be a slim chance, a terribly slim chance, to get away. Dard cringed at the sound of the vicious attack the copter riders were still centering behind him, an attack delivered without any call to surrender. All that blind hatred which had boiled over during the purge was still smoldering and those who were now hunting them. He had always known that anyone of proven scientist blood would have little chance if the peacemen tracked him down, but now the last faint hope of mercy for the helpless was gone. Pulling Desi, he reached the end of the thicket in which they had taken refuge. By some blind chance, they had come out on the side which faced the peak, but before them lay a wide open sweep of ground, impossible to cross undetected. Dard faced it bleakly. The brightness of the sunlight somehow made that last blow harder. But even as his misery and despair weakened him, he suddenly noted again flashes of light on the peak, coming in too regular a pattern to be sun-fostered. While he was still gaping up at that, a shadow swept over. 
The copter landed directly on that virgin expanse of snow before him. He sagged, and his arms tightened around Desi, who gave a muffled cry as his grip hurt her. This was it. It was the end. They couldn't run anymore. The peace men were taking their time about leaving the copter. It looked as if they were still reluctant to approach the thicket. What had Sack done that had made them so wary? Two of them crept around the tail of the machine, and Dard saw the gun mounted on the copter's roof swing around to cover them. The men crawled slowly through the snow, but before they had reached beyond the length of the copter, that blink of light on the peak stepped up into a steady glow. Dard's eyes dropped from it to the peace men, and so he did not see their deliverance arrive. There was a swish of sound followed by a tinkle, as if glass had splintered. Green fog bellowed out around the machine, the same fatal green of the ray Sack had used on the cave slope. Without knowing why, he threw himself face down, carrying Desi with him as traces of the fog wafted slowly toward the thicket. It had to be gas, and those men were now floundering in it. Then the world went black, and Dard fell into deep space, a place where Desi, too, was swept away from him.